Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the rash of gun violence in the country, with 35 mass shootings since the May 14th massacre in Buffalo, and assess what kind of gun safety reform might emerge from Senate negotiations underway. Joining us is Joshua Horwitz, the co-director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Violence Solutions, who has spent more than three decades working on gun violence prevention issues and is the author of Guns, Democracy and the Insurrectionist Idea. We'll discuss how, through June the 1st this year, according to the Washington Post Gun Violence Archive data, there have been 246 mass shootings with more than 8,000 people killed in gun violence, putting 2022 on track to be among the deadliest years for shootings since the turn of the century. Then we'll examine whether this week's Summit of the Americas in Los Angeles will be a bust since Mexico's president has decided not to show up in protest against the Biden administration's decision not to invite the leaders of Cuba, Venezuela and Nicaragua. Joining us is Javier Corrales, a professor of political science at Amherst College who serves on the editorial board of Latin American Politics and Society and the Americas Quarterly and has also been a consultant to the United Nations, the Center for Global Development, and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Then finally, we'll assess the chances of another billionaire real estate developer running for political office, this time not the presidency, but for mayor of Los Angeles, and speak with Michael Hilsig, a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter and columnist at the Los Angeles Times. He received the Pulitzer Prize for articles exposing corruption in the entertainment industry and currently writes the twice-weekly column Golden State, covering business and economic issues relevant to life in California. His books include The New Deal, A Modern History, and Iron Empires, Robber Barons, Railroads, and the Making of Modern America. And we will discuss his latest article at the Los Angeles Times, The Business of Rick Caruso, How a Mayoral Candidate Amassed His Fortune, and whether a rich anti-abortion Republican who has donated to GOP campaigns and only recently became a Democrat can buy the votes of liberal Angelinos concerned about homelessness and crime. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now, Joshua Horwitz, who is the co-director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Violence Solutions. He has spent more than three decades working on gun violence prevention issues and is the author of Guns, Democracy and the Insurrectionist Idea. Welcome to Background Briefing, Joshua Horwitz. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Josh. And since the May 14 massacre in Buffalo, there have been 35 mass shootings in this country. And just last week, there was a mass shooting in a hospital in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where a gunman killed two doctors, a receptionist, and a patient. And then over this uh, weekend, we've seen mass shootings in Philadelphia, Chattanooga, South Carolina, Arizona, Texas, Georgia, New York, and Michigan, where 15 people were killed and more than 60 were wounded. So basically, we've had 246 mass shootings so far in this country this year in which more than 8,000 people have been killed by gun violence. So what's your sense of what's going on with the Senate negotiations between Democratic Senator Chris Murphy and, and Republican Senator John Cornyn? Is something going to emerge that at least deals with this constant and outrageous atrocity? Well, I mean, obviously, the country is really is, is really hurting. Um, the level of gun violence is unprecedented, and we need to do something. And what I want to remind people is is that we have solutions. We do not have to live like this. 
um, we have ways that we can reduce gun violence and maybe we can't stop every shooting, but we can stop a lot. And we're just not doing that. And we're, and we're not doing it because of choices that elected officials have made. And so um, here we are you know, at another crisis and another negotiation between senators. I do feel that there is some progress, that there are um, some areas of consensus developing, but we're not, we, I mean, as far as I can tell, we don't have a deal yet. And I think the, you know, as the, the, the Democrats are proposing you know, many of the things that I think are important, including uh, banning high capacity magazines and universal background checks. Um, and, and those things, uh, unfortunately, I think will not make it into the final package. I do think there could be something with background checks around the edges. Um, I do think the place that we're going to try, we're going to see the most movement is on extreme risk protection orders. Some people call them red flag laws. Um, but those are those are types of orders where family members or law enforcement can seek a temporary order to remove firearms from someone at risk. And I think it's such a common, common sense solution. It's an evidence-informed solution um, and one that intuitively makes sense to people. Hey, we saw lots of warning signs. Uh, in the in these situations before all, uh, many of these mass shootings and, and frankly before many suicides that we see firearm suicides as well so I think we're gonna I, I hope that we will see movement there I expect there to be also you know some other issues for instance around funding for services around mental health things like that um, I do th I, I do think there's an opportunity for modest movement on gun violence prevention policy but as people know um, that's never, it's not, this is just a movement is whatever happens will be too slow and not enough. So the so-called red flag laws that you, you just mentioned, Josh, 72% of people in a CBS YouGov poll supported these laws, red flag laws, and for federal background checks on all gun purchases, 81% support that. Overall, 62% support a nationwide ban on semi-automatic rifles. And apparently 44% of Republicans uh, believe that mass shootings should be accepted as part of a free society. So there you have the division, but you also have a clear majority, do you not, for something to be done? We do. Uh, poll, you know, the polling has been very strong and on the issues that, that I, I think are really important. Um, we have um, polling support among uh, both political parties, polling support among gun owners. So I, th I think the time to get this done is now. Uh, you know, people often say, well, this is going to be the same thing as last time. Nothing's going to get done. And I remind everybody, for everybody who says that, I hope you're calling your senators. I hope you're calling your representatives. I hope you're calling your state legislators. I hope you're marching this weekend when there's opportunities. Um, because I think there's a there's a conventionalism that says nothing gets done and then people sit around and wait for something to happen and don't get involved. Now is the time to get involved. Even if you have a Democratic senator who's going to vote for the bill, I, I know you're broadcasting from California, but there's plenty of represent help members of the House who need to support these bills. Um, making your voice heard by contacting legislators, um, by um, in, engaging in, in political protests, marches, and writing, calling, emailing. Now's the time to do that. Um, we need to hear from every American, every person who cares about this. Now's the time. Well, the bad news is, though, on Friday, a New York congressman, Chris Jacobs, had to abandon his bid for re-election because he uh, had expressed support for a federal assault weapons ban. So that constituency is out there, is it not? Particularly in, in red states and amongst Republicans. Yeah, Republicans are really constrained now by their primary process. Some of these seats have been gerrymandered so deeply uh, that there's, you know, in New York State, for instance, even though there's a majority of Democrats, some of the, some of the remaining Republican seats are very red. Um, and the primary process um, is is very difficult for someone even with moderate views to survive in the Republican Party because gun rights are like are, are sort of an article of faith. And uh, it actually hurts them in the general elections, but in the primaries is what they're what what they're worried about. And that makes it very difficult for the Republicans to negotiate. Um, and I think they're caught. I think many I mean, I think there are 
people in that party who would, who want to do the right thing, but they've they the base of their party is so destroyed, and those are the people who control the primary process. They're a minority, you know, a small minority of the country, but they control that primary process, and that's really made the Republican um, uh, leader, elected officials, constrained. And it goes to sort of this, you know, the issues that we have with democracy in general, which is not as many competitive districts as we should have. Because in the general election, these issues do very well, Republican or Democrat, Democratic. But the, unfortunately, the Republicans have just, because they've made this somehow stupidly an orthodox, an orthodoxy test, um, they're, they're, you know, they're, they, they've made it very hard to compromise. And again, I'm speaking with Joshua Horwitz, who's the co-director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Violence Solutions. He has spent more than three decades working on gun violence prevention issues and is the author of Guns, Democracy and the Insurrectionist Idea. So this Republican from New York paid a price because he expressed support for a federal assault weapons ban. But it's worth reminding our listeners, surely, Josh, that in 1994, there was a federal assault weapons ban. And... Unfortunately, it was sunsetted 10 years later. The sunset clause was put in there by Republicans who would otherwise not have voted for the assault weapons ban in the first place. And now a lot of Republicans and and the talking heads on Fox, etc., are making these absolutely lying, disgraceful arguments saying that the assault weapons ban that lasted for a decade, starting in 1994 made no difference. They say that the getting rid of all the guns after there was a massacre in Australia a while back has made no difference when the evidence is overwhelming that they have made a difference and there have been virtually no mass shootings in Australia since uh, they got rid of assault weapons after a shooter shot about 35 people in Tasmania. So... How do you combat that? That's a part of your job, isn't it? Uh, well, I think there's a couple ways you become that. One is to just look at how many mass shootings we have now compared to then, and there's a lot more now. But there's also some pretty strong evidence that it's it's not just the assault weapons; it's the high capacity magazines that go with them. And and there, the remember the assault weapons ban did two things: it banned a limited amount of assault weapons. We, I wish it was broader. Which I think it would have had a better effect if it was broader. But it also limited the ability to have high-capacity magazines, you know, uh, magazines over 10 rounds. And now you can buy magazines that are up to 100 rounds, you know, 30, 40, 50, 100-round magazines. And it's those, uh, the magazines where you, in in combination with the assault weapons, where you start to see a higher level of gun death, a higher level per incident. When you got when the magazines uh, have been limited, you actually see a reduction in in, um, in death uh, by assault weapons. So, and by weapons in general. So we really think it's that magazine uh, limitation that is 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 very important. And any bill that goes forward on that front, you know, limiting magazines is very important. Although, and, and look, these assault weapons are deadly. When they have high capacity magazines, they 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 you know increase the lethality. But I do, and, and assault weapons is a, you know can be especially difficult issues for Republicans. Um, and that's I, I wish they just had the guts to stand up on that. But the but the things that we're talking about right now that are really I think could move on the hill. Extremist protection orders would be very important. Expanding the background check system would be very important. Raising the age uh, to purchase from 18 to 21 a firearm would be very important. These are things that are on the table and can make a big difference. So I lament the fact that that you know we're not as close as I'd like to moving an assault weapons ban, and it's just a moral absolute tragedy that we haven't been. But right now there are things on the table that would make a difference. And I really, it's the time to get those things done. It's time to get all of this done. But I think, you know, if we can put enough, if there's enough public outcry, I think that we will get some meaningful gun reform for the first time in a while. And that's what I'm hoping to see in the next several days. So just back to the uh, CBS YouGov poll that I mentioned earlier, and it's a new poll that just came out, 70% 77 percent said that the minimum age for buying assault rifle should be higher than 18. 32 percent said it should be 21 and 45 percent said it should be 25. Now of course the two shooters 
that did the most damage in the last uh, couple of weeks uh, in Buffalo. He was 18 and he just bought himself a assault rifle for his birthday. And in Uvalde, the 18-year-old had bought two assault rifles for his birthday. So they couldn't wait to get their hands on a gun, right, when they turned 18. Yeah, in fact, it looks, it, it appears that, um, you know, the shooters couldn't wait. And in Uvalde, the, the shooter tried to get it before uh, the, his 18th birthday. So, they, they, so age is a very important subject here. And, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about when, when is the right age, when is the maturity of the human brain. But, you know, most of these, almost all these shootings are young men. Um, and, you know, the documentation is that brain development is slower in young men. Um, and, you know, we don't let uh, people buy alcohol uh, before 21. It's just hard to imagine that we could think buying, you know, if we, if we limit alcohol, that assault weapons are okay or, or, or any other weapons okay. Um, if they're not able to handle alcohol, I don't think that people are able to handle um, uh, firearms, which are, you know, which are, are extremely deadly. I've often seen the comparison to, well, if you can join the military at 18, should you be able to own a weapon? But when you join the military, the use of firearms is quite regulated where you can use it. Um, you're not, it's not like every recruit is issued an assault weapon and they carry it all the time across bases and things like that. Weapons training, use of firearms is very limited uh, in, in, in always ordered in the, in, you know, always well, well regulated, frankly. And, uh, and, you know, when you, when and that's not the same in the private sector at all, when you get out in the private world at all. And so I think the appropriate way to think about this is alcohol um, and alcohol, we know we, um, I, I think now every state limits that uh, to, to 21 and over. And so at least we have to do the same for firearms. So just in the last couple of minutes, let's summarize on the issue of improving red flag laws designed to stop gun purchases by people deemed to be a potential danger to others or themselves. What, what's likely to happen on that? Um, I wouldn't say likely. I think what's being discussed is um, the ability to uh, fund uh, state implementation of extreme risk protection orders so that law enforcement knows how to use them. We saw in Buffalo that the law exists in New York, but the, uh, the law enforcement did not seem to be well-versed or trained in it. We do a fair amount of training. It's long. It takes a long time. It takes resources. So I think there's a I think what we're what we're hopefully going to see at a, a very minimum is a robust funding for the implementation of these types of orders, and hopefully other states will jump in and jump in and start doing them as well. And we hope that the federal government can provide resources to do that well. Uh, there will be a bill that comes out of the House uh, that create that I, I think will, would create a federal uh, federal uh, uh, extremist law. I, I don't think that's going to be on the table in the Senate, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, so, you know, I do think that's an area where we're going to get some bipartisan support. And, you know, I wish, and I'm sure you did, everybody wishes that we could get a bigger, broader sense of bipartisan support. But I do think it's important that where there is an opportunity to proceed with solutions that will save lives, that we take it, even if it's less than we want. But the bottom line is for people out here listening, make as much noise as you can ask for as much as we possibly want, because in the end, um, you know, we don't want we don't want people walking away from the table with nothing. So just in the last minute, then we need to just touch quickly on the other two possibilities, improving background checks and raising the age to buy an assault rifle from 18 to either 21 or 25. Well, I think, you know, Florida did that uh, after the shooting. Um, after shooting at the Marjorie Stone and Douglas High School, and I think that was done by a Republican governor, and I'm ho- and I don't think people paid any political price for that at all, and so I, I it just makes so much sense to do that, uh, I, and I also believe there is a realization that our background check system needs to be improved. There are too many loopholes, too many opportunities to buy guns outside of the background check, and I am hopeful that at least in some commercial venues that we will be able to expand the background check. We should just have a universal background check. It's easy, it works. There's no reason not to have it. Um, and we need to ask forcefully for all these things. Um, and hopefully, um, you know, hopefully we can help, uh, you know, that, that we'll be able to, that, that there will be a push 
to finally get something done. There's no guarantees of that. Um, but at least right at the moment, there are some meaningful things on the table. For those of you who have been listening to this for years, all the listeners out there, it's frustrating. It's way too slow. Uh, and it's just, it's aggravating that we, that we have to sacrifice our children on this. Um, at the same time, stay involved, keep asking for what you want, and hopefully we'll get some momentum, some movement this time around. Well, Joshua Horwitz, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And again, I may speak to Joshua Horwitz, who is the co-director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Violence Solutions. He has spent more than three decades working on gun violence prevention issues and is the author of Guns, Democracy and the Insurrectionist Idea. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining whether this week's Summit of the Americas in Los Angeles will be a bust since Mexico's president has decided not to show up in protest against the Biden administration's decision not to invite the leaders of Cuba, Venezuela and Nicaragua. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Javier Corrales, who's a professor of political science at Amherst College, who serves on the editorial board of Latin American Politics and Society and America's Quarterly. And he's also been a consultant to the United Nations, the Center for Global Development and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Welcome to Background Briefing, Javier Corrales. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Javier. And what do you make of the uh, Summit of the Americas here in Los Angeles this week, which Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador confirmed today, Monday, that he is not going to show up? And the reason is that he was uh, wanted Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela to be invited, uh, but the Biden administration decided against it. So this doesn't sound like it's going to be particularly helpful for Biden, who's already having problems with these poll numbers. Do you think this summit of the Americas is going to be dead on arrival? I wouldn't go that far. Um, I I do recognize that this is a um, serious diplomatic setback for the United States. The United States would have strongly preferred to have Lopez Obrador in attendance, but he's not attending that said, I I don't think that, let me just put it this way, I think Lopez Obrador is taking advantage of the fact that he knows that the relationship between the United States and Mexico is strong enough, solid enough, secure enough, that he feels that he can do something like this, knowing that this won't have negative repercussions uh, uh, um, in his relationship with the United States. So it's a little bit like um, he's doing this precisely because he is the one who has the most privileged relationship with the United States, and he knows that this isn't going to really, really hurt him or, or, or Mexico's relationship with the United States. That said, that said, it's it's unfortunate that Mexico isn't there um, mostly because, frankly, the reason he is giving suggests to me at least that the Mexican president doesn't value the principle of democracy as much as I think he should. But nevertheless, nevertheless, he wanted to to be the uh, uh, he wanted to make headlines with this. So, do you think he really is in solidarity with Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua? There is some of that. Mexico has always had a tradition predating López Obrador of being in good terms with all nations in the hemisphere, regardless of their governance records. And especially Cuba during the Cold War and after the Cold War and during the negotiations with NAFTA and during the Trump years, um, Mexico has always wanted to be in good terms with Cuba, and also, of course, with the United States. So there is some of that. 
Also, Mexico has been hosting um, conversations between the Venezuelan government and the opposition. They're taking place in, in Mexico. And I think Lopez Obrador feels that he 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 wants to honor some of that. Um, um, so uh, those elements come into consideration um, uh, in, in, for us trying to understand what's happening with uh, Lopez Obrador. Now that said, that said, I do want to emphasize that um, um, you know Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua have committed incredibly horrific acts of human rights abuses and disregard for democracy and disregard for um, civil society. And to see Lopez Obrador be so nonchalant about these issues is a bit worrying. It's a bit sort of like uh, uh, we would want him to, to understand the importance of um, democracy and, and human rights in the Americas. But for him, this is not such a high value. And this is one reason why he's also taking this position. That's my guess. And again, I'm speaking with Javier Corrales, who's a professor of political science at Amherst College, who serves on the editorial board of Latin American Politics and Society and America's Quarterly. And he's also been a consultant to the United Nations, the Center for Global Development and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Well, Javier Corrales, you're the author of U.S.-Venezuelan Relations since the 1990s and Dragon in the Tropics, Hugo Chavez and the Political Economy of Revolution in Venezuela. So I'm sure you recall that at the 2009 Summit of the Americas in Trinidad and Tobago, Venezuelan leader then Hugo Chavez gave President Obama a copy of Eduardo Galeano's classic book, The Open Veins of Latin America, Five Centuries of the Pillage of a Continent. And then uh, later in 2015, President Obama shook hands with Raul Castro, uh, the Cuban leader at the Summit of the Americas in Panama. So why is it then that you have a previous president who Joe Biden was the vice president, of course, to President Obama, and he had the Latin American portfolio uh, under Obama for eight years. So I don't get it. I mean, why, if you've, if you've met with these leaders before at these summits, why not at this one? Those are excellent questions. So let's let's address them uh, in part. With Venezuela, back then, the country had some democratic infractions, but nothing compared to what Maduro, Hugo Chavez's successor, has done since uh, Maduro came to power. This is a government that has basically arrested tons of uh, Venezuelans, torture them, has created huge um, difficulties for the opposition, the leadership, has really tinkered with elections and uh, has created a humanitarian crisis of enormous proportions. So, so Venezuela is not the same country that it was in 2009 in terms of democracy. Now, with Cuba, the very interesting question is that I think Biden has recognized that there was a bit of a mistake with the Obama policy toward Cuba, which um, the policy toward Cuba was that under Obama was that by being incredibly accommodating and welcoming, that Cuba would also soften its authoritarianism. But it didn't happen. Uh, on the contrary, last year, Cuba had one of the most uh, acts of uh, repression. And so um, Biden feels like, look, the United States had plenty of overtures uh, before and um, you didn't respond to us when we were in the White House when, when Biden was vice president, and then, tr then Trump came along. So so Biden feels a little bit betrayed by, um, by Cuba, and this could explain why he is being a bit more hardline this time towards Cuba. Well, it may also have something to do with Florida politics. I mean, and that's what he's yes. being accused of, that some of the Democrat, progressive Democrats have 
I'm more or less saying, you know, you're sucking up to the Miami Cubans, and at the end of the day, they're going to vote Republican anyway, aren't they? At the end of the day, they're going to vote Republican. Uh, the Republicans uh, are going to vote Republican. But um, that said, I do think that that's an important consideration, but I really don't think that it is the most important. After all, Biden did relax a few of the sanctions toward Cuba already. And um, uh, though I totally agree that Florida politics come into play, I want to make sure that uh, we also understand that um, Biden feels that the United States um, under Obama gave way, gave many concessions to Cuba and Cuba didn't really return them with anything. And so, of course, he's not one to go back to Florida with the same approach and say, look, let's let's uh, be nice to uh, Diaz Canel, the president of Cuba, one more time and get nothing in return. So uh, that's you know, I, I I would always talk about Florida politics in combination with the fact that um, the Cuban government really never yields. Well, he is, of course, uh, Biden inviting Bolsonaro of Brazil. And a lot of critics are saying, well, <laughs> if you have a problem with Cuba, Venezuela and Nicaragua, why don't you have a problem with uh, these anti-democratic behavior of uh, Bolsonaro? Um, the Biden administration knows that there are um, issues with uh, Bolsonaro pertaining to democracy. That said, they don't compare in, I don't know of any ranking of uh, democracy and civil rights that give Brazil the same low scores that Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela get. So um, one argument for uh, making sure that Brazil comes is precisely because it's not a lost case the way that Cuba, Nicaragua, and uh, Venezuela are. There's still a chance to be uh, engaged in preventing more erosion of democratic principles in Brazil. Um, the United States knows very well that Brazil is about to have a very complicated election in which Bolsonaro may lose. And the United States is very worried about what Bolsonaro may do if he loses. And it might be a very good idea to invite him and talk to him about these things um, preemptively because yes, um, although Brazil isn't moving in the direction that we would want it to be moving, it's moving more in the direction of infractions of democratic principles. It's not to the same degree of severity that we are seeing in Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. Well, Bolsonaro is, of course, running against Lula. Lula is making a comeback. Um, yes. And Lula himself, I believe, was critical of the U.S. decision not to invite uh, Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. Right. Um, yes, Lula was, when Lula was president of Brazil, he was a very good friend of uh, these regimes. He comes from uh, that the left. And so he's always had the idea that those regimes are, they don't deserve to be excluded. And yeah, I, I understand that that's his position. I, I wish he would be as critical of violations of democracy and human rights coming from left-wing governments as he is of right-wing governments. But yeah, this is this is a little bit like Lopez Obrador. Um, he seems to be a bit more forgiving of regimes that are closer to him ideologically on questions of democracy and human rights. But do you think that this is backfiring in this summit? I mean, as I mentioned in the beginning, Javier, it's the last thing that Biden needs is to sort of look like something else has been bungled. And obviously yes. his focus is on Ukraine, but still he's the host and he's made a big deal about trying to change things in Latin America or change the U.S. relations to Latin America. And I believe that is the agenda that the U.S. wants to uh, present 
at this summit this week here in Los Angeles, but it almost feels like Cuba is the winner here, not the U.S. The way that I would describe the cost to the United States of what's happening here is I would worry less about the mess with the invite list and focus instead of what I think was the biggest mistake that the Biden administration made. The biggest mistake was to assume that all that the United States needed to do was to send out an invitation and all these countries in the region would come because who says no to the United States? And what we found is that, uh, you know, they were not that excited to come. And, you know, they were creating all kinds of reasons and excuses, um, some of them very legitimate, some of them less legitimate. But it suggested that the countries of the hemisphere no longer feel that it is in their interest to be in close association with the United States. And that is something that the Biden administration should have been able to anticipate and be able to address beforehand. It should have had the antenna to recognize that we're in a different era, that uh, the United States has lost appeal in the region, that the United States is very, very uh, unforthcoming with reasons for nations to feel that they need to partner up with the United States. And the Biden administration assumed that countries would simply uh, just want to be uh, at the summit uh, because, like, again, who says no to the United States? I think this is a wake-up call for the United States in its relationship with the region. It needs to be, it is a re I hope it serves as a reminder that um, um, these nations uh, if they're going to be in collaboration with the United States, they expect far more respect and greater rewards for uh, um, associating themselves with the United States. And you're absolutely right. The United States uh, might have been distracted for, uh, uh, or whatever reason, but it didn't really imagine ways that it could make um, more appealing and rewarding for nations to attend the summit and to be in closer collaboration with the United States. Well, the Biden administration, of course, has presented this summit as a vision for a, quote, sustainable, resilient and equitable future for the hemisphere. And uh, the former Mexican foreign minister, Jorge Castaneda, basically said that uh, this ambitious agenda, no one knows exactly what it is other than a series of bromides. And he also mm -hmm. uh, went on to say that the real question is why the Biden administration didn't do its homework. So he's referring, of course, to this brouhaha over the guest list and, and Mexico deciding not to attend. Would you agree with the former foreign minister of, of Mexico? Um, I, he, I, yes, I mean, um, Jorge Castaneda does have a point um, by stating that uh, these lofty goals um, are a bit too abstract and they seem they, they don't seem to have anything concrete associated with them and to expect nations to to all of a sudden endorse these goals simply because they sound very good it's perhaps incredibly unrealistic and i also agree that there should have been a little bit more homework but not so much on the question of uh, should we invite Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela or not? That to me is really not where the problem is. But uh, like I said, the problem of imagining more um, concrete ways of demonstrating to Latin American nations that it is in their best interest to seek partnerships with the United States. Um, it is there where the United States is, in my opinion, falling short of. Well, Javier Corrales, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you very much, Ian. My pleasure. And again, I may speak with Javier Corrales, who's a professor of political science at Amherst College, who serves on the editorial board of Latin American Politics and Society and the Americas Quarterly. And he's also been a consultant to the United Nations, the Center for Global Development, and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. 
We're going to take a brief station break, accessing the chances of another billionaire real estate developer running for political office, this time not the presidency, but for mayor of Los Angeles. Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Hilsig, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter and columnist at the Los Angeles Times. He received the Pulitzer Prize for articles exposing the corruption in the entertainment industry, and he currently writes a twice-weekly column, Golden State, covering business and economic issues relevant to life in California. And his books include The New Deal and Modern History and Iron Empires, Rubber Barons, Railroads and the Making of Modern America. And his latest article at the Los Angeles Times is The Business of Rick Caruso, How a Mayoral Candidate Amassed His Fortune. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Hiltzik. Uh Hi, Ian. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Michael. And the fortune, uh, or a very small percentage of Rick Caruso's uh, fortune, I think it's, what, $33 million is being spent on a mayoral campaign here in Los Angeles. I must say, I don't know about your mailbox, Michael, but my mailbox has been stuffed with so many flyers from candidates all the way down from mayor to dog catcher. So is there something happening in this year? I mean, uh, is there more money in politics than ever? Or it seems to be trickling down to all kinds of races that normally never advertised or sought votes. Uh, so I, I gather that uh, that the races this year um, in and around L.A. are uh, generating a lot more contributions or a lot more spending than we normally see. And, and of course, the, the poster child for that is the mayoral race, which would have been, I think, within the, the normal bounds, if not for Rick Caruso spending more than $33 million of his own money to to get elected. And of course, this is nothing new, but the some of the ads that I've been getting, pro and con, particularly those against him, Jeffrey Katzenberg signed on to a flyer recently that was pretty damning. Is there a problem with this man? Uh, I mean, Katzenberg's flyer suggested he's a complete fraud like Donald Trump, and he doesn't apparently talk to the press, and normally candidates sit before the Los Angeles Times editorial board. Is it true that he's refused to do so? No, he did sit with the editorial board um, uh, a month or two ago, and um, and we published essentially the transcript of that uh, of that encounter. Uh, I think what it showed, uh, and I think what we alluded to, that is Roger Vincent, my my co-author and myself, is that he didn't really articulate new and novel solutions to the issues that he's placed front and center in his campaign, which is to say homelessness and crime. You know, he wants to hire more police officers, which Karen Bass, his his principal um, adversary, has also advocated. Uh, He's got a, a plan for temporary shelters for the homeless, but that's not really going to solve the fundamental problem, which is the lack of affordable housing in uh, in Los Angeles and, in fact, in California generally. I mean, tents are not really going to be the answer. We need much more comprehensive solution, and we need what we used to have, which is federal and state funding, to build affordable housing. And since both the state and the federal government have essentially withdrawn from that marketplace, uh, and you know, we were relying on the private sector we're not getting it from there. We certainly didn't get it from Rick Caruso to the extent that he's been a residential developer. So is it fair to say then that he doesn't really engage with the press and that he just spends on advertising? Yes, definitely. He would much prefer to have uh, articles written that uh, take him at his own level of self-esteem. So 
is this then a, as Katzenberg and these others have written in these flyers that I've been getting, is he a fraud? Is it fair to compare him to Trump? I mean, he's a rich real estate developer, very good at self-promotion, running for political office, not president of the United States, but mayor of Los Angeles. Uh, I think it would probably be a little unfair to compare him to Donald Trump. I mean, he's he's smarter than Trump. He doesn't have the um, the hostility to uh, to to the public. He's not uh, a right winger uh, on Trump's scale. Uh, what the, the the characteristics that he shares with Trump uh, are his wealth, although Trump has always overstated his wealth. And his uh, uh, his having made his fortune in real estate, uh, we asked, and and I wrote an earlier column about this, that he's been very uh, closed mouthed about how much he actually does have as as net worth. I mean, Forbes has estimated his fortune at about four billion dollars. Uh, when he issued a statement about his taxes, he. He disclosed how much he's paid in taxes, but not what his income was. So it was it's impossible to determine whether he's paying his fair share, uh, or you know, or really you know how much money he he makes his income. So uh, I mean, from that standpoint, he resembles Trump in that he's he's refused to to disclose really useful information about his wealth and his income. But on a political uh, basis, I, I, I don't think you can really compare his politics to Trump's politics. And again, I'm speaking with Michael Hiltzik, a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter and columnist at the Los Angeles Times. He received the Pulitzer Prize for articles exposing the corruption in the entertainment industry. And he's currently writes a twice weekly column, Golden State, covering business and economic issues relevant to life in California. And his books include The New Deal, A Modern History, and Iron Empires, Robber Barons, Railroads, and the Making of America. And his latest article of the Los Angeles Times is The Business of Rick Caruso, How a Mayoral Candidate Amassed His Fortune. But another comparison would be that his father, Rick Caruso's father, gave him a big leg up in business, right? The father founded Dollar Rent-A-Car and sold it to Chrysler. And the advantage that Caruso's had, as you point out in your article uh, at the Los Angeles Times, the business of Rick Caruso, how a mayoral candidate amassed his fortune, is that he's been able to spend his own money and control projects and reap all the benefits. He doesn't have to deal with investors and partners. Yeah, I think as as our article uh, pointed out, yes, he got uh, a link up uh, through his father, and he did that, uh, as we documented, uh, through the scheme in which he would buy uh, parking lots uh, uh, around where a dollar rent uh was doing business, and he would lease them uh, back to his father, back to his father's company. Uh, and he was able to basically um, uh, acquire these parking lots and get... Uh, debt funding for them because the lenders would know that he had basically a guaranteed buyer or a guaranteed lessee uh, for those parking lots in in dollar rent-a-car. So that was a big advantage. And, uh, you know, we know in this country that to make money, it helps to come from money. So he did that. Now, uh, we also know, and, and as we reported, that he doesn't actually do all of his funding personally, that he does bring in uh, banks to do construction funding on his projects. Um, uh, they loan him the money for that. And then uh, eventually, he says, he buys them out so that he ends up as the principal, if not the exclusive owner of these properties, which generate a, a lot of a lot of income, uh, better income than other, you know, if we're talking about his shopping malls, uh, they're very high-end. They're uh, listed at, at, at the high end of shopping malls in the U.S. in terms of sales per square foot. So they do very well, and he reaps the benefit. So real estate developments, of course, always deal with City Hall, and it's often adversarial. But if you have a real estate developer who becomes the mayor, 
does he end up having to negotiate with himself? He he owns City Hall. Well, what he has said is that he's going to place his company uh, in trust, and it's going to be run by his current deputy, uh, and that they're not going to start any new projects um, beyond the ones that are already being developed, including a fairly controversial residential high rise in uh, West LA, uh, that he's not going to start anything new uh, while he is mayor. But uh, look, uh, you know, the fact that he's that he's mayor, if he does become mayor, is going to be a big help for him uh, down the line. Um, and I would say that, unlike a lot of other developers, Caruso's relationship with municipal uh, officials has more often than not been a friendly one and a positive one. And that's because municipalities like the style of retail mall that he builds, uh, they're clean, they're, uh, they're attractive, they get a lot of traffic, they attract uh, uh, very high-end retailers, uh, he controls the environment very carefully, and they all like that. Uh, these are not strip malls, um, which can produce a lot of traffic that, that congests uh, local streets. They're, they're, they're nothing like that. So more often than, or at least on a few occasions, some municipalities have reached out to him to say, can you build us a retail mall that resembles this retail mall you built a few miles away? We'd like to have something just like that. The pushback that he tends to get when he proposes a retail development is from incumbent retail malls in, in the neighborhood. And that's what happened in Glendale, where he was in a long fight with the Glendale Galleria before he was able to build the Americana at Brand, which is uh, one of his real signature properties. And he was in a long fight with uh, an incumbent mall at Santa Anita Racetrack race, race when he was planning uh, uh, to build a mall in cooperation with the owners of Santa Anita uh, there in, in Arcadia. But other than that, I think his relationship with municipal leaders has been uh, pretty well, pretty good. Well, he gives him lots of campaign donations, doesn't he? He does. Uh, uh, the campaign donations that we track, uh, they, they really peaked uh, around 2016 when he was uh, when there was a measure on the ballot uh, for a, a heightened sales tax for transit properties that. He uh, he contributed in favor. He contributed he contributed to uh, 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 city council members uh, at that time, basically to get that thing passed because he would benefit. His projects would benefit from it. Now, between then, 2016 and 2022, he made uh, no political contributions that we contract. But then, in 2022, he started contributing to his own campaign. And and that's been a tremendous uh, expenditure thus far. So he's neck to neck, apparently, in the polls. And the vote, of course, is tomorrow, Tuesday. He's running against uh, Congresswoman Karen Bass and Kevin DeLeon, a former... Mm. He was a former speaker, was he not, of the California Assembly? Yes, he's been a, a, a state legislator and a city councilman as well. So, in effect, Karen Bass and Kevin DeLeon are splitting the vote, aren't they? Which gives Caruso an advantage. Well, it doesn't really look that way. I mean, our latest poll at, at, here at the Los Angeles Times showed uh, basically this to be a two-person race between Karen Bass and Rick Caruso. I think Kevin DeLeon has fallen uh, uh, so far behind that I don't think he's really a factor. And our latest polling shows that Bass has edged ahead, but that neither Bass nor Caruso has uh, gained, uh, are expected to gain enough of a vote to avoid a runoff election in November. If either one of them gets more than 50% tomorrow, uh, they will be mayor. Uh, but it looks like if, if either one is going to achieve that, uh, it looks like it, it's more likely to be Bass than, than Caruso. But of course, you know, we never know until the votes are counted. So just in closing then, Michael Hilsing, back to the advertising against Caruso. 
much of it is focused on the fact that he has, as far as I can tell, he's always been a Republican until recently he decided to become a Democrat. And of course, that would be strategically necessary to get elected in Los Angeles or even in California itself. And that the accusations are that he's a, he's a fraud. I mean, that he he gave $900,000 to Mitch McConnell and McCarthy, the top Republicans, and that he was always, he's always been anti-abortion and uh, actively supported anti-abortion causes. So just what's fair there? Is this guy basically an opportunist, changing his political brand and his political past in order to get elected? Uh, I would say that's not unfair. Uh, yes, he's been a Republican for most of his career, and he changed. He he left the Republican Party and was an un, uh, undesignated um, voter uh, for a number of years, and then he uh, registered as a Democrat uh, either uh, early this year or maybe late last year when he was contemplating uh, this mayoral run. Uh, and yes, he has paid for and supported uh, political positions that are really anathema to a great number of California voters and, and Los Angeles voters, including, as you said, uh, anti-abortion campaigns. So there's that. What we found uh, interesting is that his own campaign advertising sort of downplays or at least uh, minimizes his business career and emphasizes a couple of civic uh, positions that he has held, one of them being the presidency of the uh, Los Angeles Police Commission, which was sort of a controversial post uh, back when he held it. And the other is uh, chairmanship of the Board of Trustees of USC, in, in which he played a role trying to clean up the multiple scandals at, at USC involving sexual uh, abuse by faculty members and prominent members of the faculty and the administration. So he's sort of positioned himself as a problem solver. And the, the idea is, well, you know, if we have this problem with homelessness and crime, uh, Rick Caruso is the guy who can basically take care of that. He hasn't talked about his political positions in the past, at least not in his own campaign. He hasn't talked about having been a Republican in the past. He hasn't talked about abortion. He's avoided all that. Uh, so he's basically trying to run on the competency point. And, uh, you know, we'll see if Los Angeles voters are sufficiently uh, obsessed and, and upset with homelessness and and crime that they'll uh, they'll vote for him and against Karen Bass. Well, Margaret Hiltzik, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Happy to do it. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Hiltzik, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter and columnist at the Los Angeles Times. He received the Pulitzer Prize for articles exposing the corruption in the entertainment industry, and he currently writes a twice-weekly column, Golden State, covering business and economic issues relevant to life in California. And his books include The New Deal and Modern History and Iron Empires, Robert Barron's Railroads and the Making of Modern America. And his latest article at the Los Angeles Times is The Business of Rick Caruso, How a Mayoral Candidate amassed his fortune. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. 
And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet voice said it something to me An angel song about the home of the brave in this land here Oh